So we're calling this one the swallowing of death. And I'm going to start you guys off with the night that this happened. It was possibly the coldest night of winter last year. It was one of those nights when it is just sacrilegiously cold. And the wind was vicious and angry that kind of night in the middle of winter. And I was in the kitchen cleaning up dinner or something, as my memory goes, um, doing something in the kitchen. I had my headphones on, listening to a book, a podcast, something, you know, straightening up after dinner. The wind is beating against the house. And that's when I heard something that I couldn't make sense of. Now, what I'm about to tell you happened all in the course of a few seconds. But it's going to sound like it took minutes for me to process this. You know what that's like. So I hear this terrible, crushing, crashing, tearing sound. And I freeze and my blood turns cold. And I'm immediately thinking... Oh my goodness, Russia has sent a fighter jet over our nation and Lake Arrowhead's getting bombed right now. (laughs) But in a moment, I realized that the sound was too consistent. A fighter jet would come and go in in a heartbeat across my house. It wasn't that. Then you start thinking, this is the big one California's due for. Oh no, and you're thinking, where am I gonna throw my body and save it when the house goes down? No, the house isn't moving. It's not that either. (gasps) This is what an avalanche sounds like, except it's the snow coming off of our roof. And then I relax, thinking that's all it is. No, no, it's not coming from above me either. So, you know, I'm taking off the headphones after a moment of panic. Then I'm like, what is going on? Silence. The wind continues to howl against the house. And I think, oh, maybe... So I go out on our back porch, and I look outside, and my wind is bitten immediately by the unkind wind, and I notice something looks different. So I grab a flashlight. Yep, I'm pretty sure there used to be a tree there. (laughs) So then I put on the boots, and I put on the long johns, and the fur coat, and the beanie, and the gloves. You know, it's really cold. And I go out to investigate. This was the most, like, terrifying sound I had ever heard in the safety of my home. I had to go figure this out. And sure enough, I come to the largest oak in our area. It was only 60, maybe 100 feet at most from our house. And the whole thing had snapped in half, about 10 feet up the trunk. Not a branch fell off. The thing snapped in half and came crashing down and brought down a couple other trees with it. That's what I had heard. I had no idea wood made that sound when it snaps. Well, I'm down there investigating the carnage, this massive ancient tree that has come down in seconds that made such a a, a respectable sound, and I'm looking at it because I'm like really curious. Trees just snap in half? I mean, this must have been a pretty bad tree, and I'm shining the light in it, and I realized, oh, wow, this oak tree was rotted from the inside out. There was nothing but spongy guck in the center, the core of this tree, and it was only a matter of time before this thing was coming down. Then I'm like, wow, I'm really glad it fell away from the house because we were definitely in range, but this is where I I recognized that... (laughs) Sometimes things are too far gone to be fixed. They have to come down. But, but, they come down, and in the midst of that hacking, that cutting, God starts something new. And now, if you look at this snag, oh, you thought, this is half-broken oak, 10 feet high, just sitting there, um, this, coming out of the top of this trunk, are now at least two dozen shoots coming off. It looks like a hairdo. Two dozen shoots, at least three to six feet long each. And the thing is alive and well, despite the fact that it was rotted through. 
the roots were still intact. And through this, there's new life coming out. Now, it's going to look really hectic in another 50 years, I'm sure. But it's alive. And there's new life in it. And that, that came to my mind as, as we're looking at Isaiah. Because this is what God tells them that they are like. Um, they're sick. They're like a rotted out tree. So look in Isaiah chapter 1. In verse 5, the middle of verse 5 says, The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed or bound up or softened with oil. You may remember that's the heavens and the earth accusing Israel of being so sick The whole head is sick. They're rotten all the way from toe to head. They are done. They they are just beyond hope. Well, then you saw in chapter 5, you may remember, they are likened in a song. Isaiah comes on stage and sings his operatic song, and he sings about the vineyard. So in chapter 5, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. The vineyard is Israel. My beloved had a vineyard. God had a vineyard. On a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. It should have. He did everything for it. But it yielded Wild grapes. Verse 7. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but found bloodshed. For righteousness, but found an outcry. So, not only do we see in the opening that they're just sick in the head and the whole thing is just, there's no soundness in Israel. Now we see that they are a vineyard that is bearing no fruit. They're rotten. Nothing good is coming out of them. So, what has happened? What do we see God say in chapter 6? He calls Isaiah to be a prophet. Okay? Isaiah, you're going to be the one who talks to this sick-headed people with no soundness from head to foot. They're rotten through to the core. You're going to talk to them. Okay? But in verse 10, Isaiah 6.10, this is what he's supposed to tell them. His message is not very helpful. Make the heart of this people dull. (laughs) Their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then Isaiah says, say what now? How long, O Lord, you want me to blind them and deaf them and make sure that their heads don't understand anything you want them? You want me to distance them from you? Yeah, I do. Because the whole nation's rotten to the core. Why try to save what's rotten? I'm going to hack it down. And then a new shoot, new life will come from the stump. So he continues. Isaiah says, what? How long, O Lord? And God answers, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And Yahweh removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And so remember, Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians eventually and um, the people are scattered. Some are in Babylon. The other cities were scattered throughout the world. Yeah. And then in verse 13. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed, that's Israel, the holy seed is its stump. So here we see God saying, look, they're rotten to the core, nothing left but to chop them down. And so Isaiah's being sent as a prophet to help them be cut down. But my friends, God never destroys without having the purpose of new life behind it. 
And he will sometimes do what he must in order to get new life to come through. He's not into preserving you as you are. That's actually what most of us want when we pray for growth and change. We're like, I, I, everything's fine, just make it a little better. But God's like, no, no, no. There's some rottenness in your trunk. To the core, you are sick in the head. I'm sorry, I'm, I don't know if you literally are, but he looks at us and says, look, I love you too much just to simply put stilts around you and say, oh, don't fall over in the wind. I actually want to create a new life in you. So I will cut you down if I have to. So that new life will come out of it. Okay, so Isaiah is being sent to be the one to fell the nation to a stump. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, we see the hope. What's going to come out of this felled stump? Chapter 11, verse 1. Of course, you, you know from Jesus' teaching last week that here's where the Emmanuel child is to be born. So we know that Jesus is lurking in the background of what's going on with this stump. And then we see in chapter 11, verse 1, he's alluded to here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember what we just read in chapter 6? The holy seed is a stump. Well, guess what this stump is now going to become? It's going to grow shoots. Now, Jesse, if you're confused, Jesse was the father of David, and David was Israel's highest king, right? So this is just a way of saying the people of Israel. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness, he won't be partial, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. When Jesus comes, the stump will be growing branches, shoots, and fruit. Jesus is going to do this. And then you see more, um, like the wolf laying with the lamb and the children able to play with serpents and not be bitten. Um, oh yeah, let's keep going. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The lion will become a vegetarian. I'm really glad, by the way, that it didn't say more than the lion will become a vegetarian. Some of you get that, I guess. The house, uh, no, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. You know, if I see Atticus reaching his hand in some mysterious hole in the ground in the forest, more snakeskins are shed around it. I'd be, ah, uh, no, kid, get that hand out of it. Nope. But things are going to change. And a kid can put his hand in there and play with the serpent. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Even the animals will know Yahweh. It's going to be radically different. So... We see why God will sometimes cut things out, cut things down. It's for our good, friends. It's for our good. Sometimes the best way he can love us is by removing something. Now, on the outside, or even within it, you just observe this going on and you say, that looks like wrath, that looks like fury, that looks like judgment. But God is showing us what the world calls my wrath and my fury I'm showing you that it's nothing more than my acts of healing. It looks like it's destroying and devastating, but that's just what the world sees because the world is so into progress. You have to move forward. I'm into the kind of progress that makes lasting change, which means sometimes we have to step back in order to go forward. Sometimes we have to cut down in order to see fruit grow out. So what they're calling my wrath and my anger and I'm a mad, upset God 
It's actually my love working deeper than your imagination is willing to go. I'm about the root, soundness within. That then brings us to chapter 13. And what happened in chapters 1 through 12 is we saw messages to Judah, to Jerusalem, to Israel, God's people. 1 through 12, messages for them. We're now going to cover 13 through 23. In 13 through 23, we're going to have messages to the nations. So we're going to see Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, Edom, the Philistia, Arabia, um, uh, Cush. We're going to see these nations are going to be addressed. But important to know, we never see Isaiah go to these nations and say these words. He's actually delivering messages about the nations to Israel. So whatever is being said here is for Israel. So we go from chapters 1 through 12, words to Israel. Chapters 13 through 23, words about the nations. And then we're going to end up in chapters 24 through 27. And it's going to be words about the earth, the future of the earth. And you see the progress here? We're starting in Jerusalem. We're moving out to the nations. And then we're covering the entire cosmos. Doesn't it sound like Acts? When the Spirit comes upon you, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Isaiah has a from Jerusalem to the world vision. And we're going to see the prophecies move in that way. So, moving on to the nations. We're going to do this quickly because I really want to get to the um, 24 to 27. It's called Isaiah's Apocalypse. Isn't that cool? So you know about Revelation? Isaiah has his own little miniature apocalypse. So we're going to get to that. So chapter 13. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah son of Amos saw. Oh, Babylon, the first one that's coming down. <laughs> so there's some words for Babylon. Um, when uh, Look at verse 9, 13.9. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh of hosts. In the day of his fierce anger. Of course, you see this in Revelation 6, a very similar description. Um, when the Lamb opens the sixth seal, um, after the four horsemen come, there's going to be this great shaking of the earth. Islands will disappear, mountains will flatten, and islands will flatten, and it's just going to be absolute chaos, and the sun and moon will be darkened. Chapter 14, we continue on with the judgment of Babylon. But then Isaiah turns his attention to the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon. Uh, look at verse 14, verse 4. You'll take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. Yahweh has broken the staff of the wicked the scepter of rulers that struck the people in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. Boy, God didn't think Babylonian, the Babylonian king was a very good guy, did he? The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. When Babylon's king falls, the world is rejoicing. Even the trees looking for sight. The cypress rejoices at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes against us. Shul beneath. That's the place of the dead. Shul beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. Whew. So, hell, the afterlife is going to welcome king of Babylon. We have a room for you. We've been waiting. Um, verse 10, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we, you have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to shul. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and the worms are your covers. Ugh. Then verse 12, Isaiah then is on a roll. And he's like, by the way, king of Babylon, you remind me of someone. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set, sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you, scratch their heads and ask, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let his prisoners go home? They're going to see the king of Babylon in his fallen state, scratch their heads and say, That's you, you puny little thing? You did all this destruction? Now, there's this double meaning, though, going on here. Isaiah's like, this is you, king of Babylon, but you remind me of someone. The day star, the one fallen from heaven. Or um, it's uh, the King James just went with um, a transliteration, Lucifer, which is um, where we get some, one of Satan's many names, one of his many nicknames, Lucifer. So, hey, king of Babylon, you follow the ways of the devil, Your pride has brought you down. How would you like to be compared with the devil? So, good stuff there. In verse 1424, you have um, an oracle concerning Assyria. In verse 28, Philistia. Now, so these are now the, now that Babylon's going down, the neighbors around them are going down. Chapter 15, an oracle concerning Moab. You might remember the Moabites who sent their um, priestesses to go marry the Jewish men and make them fall into sin. This was back in Numbers chapter 25 when they are, Israel's moving into the promised land. Moab did not greet them very well. So chapters 15 and 16, Moab's going down. Chapter 17, an oracle concerning Damascus. Check this one out, 17 verse 1. Behold, Damascus, which by the way is the capital, is today still the city in, in Syria, right? Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. So apparently that hasn't happened yet because Damascus is there. Chapter 18, uh, an oracle concerning Cush. Chapter 19, an oracle concerning Egypt. Egypt is going down too. Of course, you know a lot of this already because when we were in Ezekiel, we looked at Ezekiel rant and rail against the nations around them and we looked at a lot of that. And you knew, remember how Pharaoh was going down, and it, um, oh, uh, I remember it was really good. He, he, very much like the king of Babylon, he's talking about how hell has basically laid your bed for you, and they can't wait to see you, and you will never get out of there. But then later in Ezekiel it says, but Israel's going to die and rise again. You are going to die and never rise again. So um, we, we've already looked at some of this. But I want you to see something very interesting. So while all of these kingdoms are being chopped down, these kings are falling. Remember, Babylon is actually referred to as, you're now going to be chopped down, so you can't chop down trees. Well, everyone's being felled. Look at God's mission here. In 19 verse 18, 1918, in that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. Or um, it can also read the city of the sun. I'm not sure the importance there of the name. But in verse 19, in that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh at its border. Wow. Those rotten pagan Egyptians who gave the golden calf to the Israelites... They're now going to get an altar for Yahweh in their land. You see what God's doing? He's even going to be healing and bringing fruit to the nations that have been enemies to Israel. Chapter 20. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time Yahweh spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Pause. Okay, Assyria was the threat. You are used to Babylon because we read Jeremiah 
and the Babylonians were sacking Jerusalem during Jeremiah's book, right? We're also used to Ezekiel, who was taken by the Babylonians to live in Babylon because Jerusalem had been destroyed, and so he was prophesying from Babylon. Isaiah is actually before those two guys. So we're stepping back before Babylon. And the city of, Israel, uh, the city of Jerusalem's going fine, a little pagan at times, but they're, they're going. The Assyrians are the threat. They're going to wipe out Samaria, the whole region of Samaria, and they're going to come up to Jerusalem. So we see this is starting to happen. Isaiah is giving us an update on where we are in history, and God tells him this as Assyria is approaching. By the way, in two weeks, we're going to see an account of Assyria surrounding Jerusalem and God's amazing deliverance of the city. They will defeat the Assyrians, and not a single arrow will be shot at the city. Pretty cool. But this is coming. It's looming. So now, at that time, Isaiah says this, verse 2, where he's told, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Now, we call it Ezekiel, the weird prophet. Isaiah is giving him a run for his money. Of course, Ezekiel uh, learned from Isaiah and outdid him, I guess. But Isaiah is walking around naked because what he's going to say there is, this is to demonstrate that all the nations are going to lose their stuff. They're going down. So be an example. Isaiah, you be a physical walking message. All right, chapter 21, more about Babylon falling. Then in 2111, Edom is going to fall. 2113, Arabia is going to fall. 22, chapter 22, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. That is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going down. And that's not news to you, because we've seen it go down. Then we come to chapter 23, the oracle concerning Tyre. Remember, Tyre was that great seaport city that was off the mainland on its own island, and it was really hard to conquer. And we looked at that in detail in Ezekiel, how Tyre goes down. So that brings us now to chapter 24. So you see, Isaiah's opened up with Israel. He's now given these oracles to the nations. We're now going to see his little apocalypse. But why would Isaiah go through so many chapters to tell Israel about the other nations and what's going to happen to them? Why would he do that? Why isn't he spending more time telling Israel about Israel? Because what Israel needed to know is that God is in charge of all the nations. What we need to know is that God is in charge of all the nations. And so while Israel worries about their economy and their everything that's going on with the threat of Assyria coming, and they're probably having some sort of cold war with Assyria at the time, while they're worried about all these things, Isaiah wanted them to know, don't worry about the nations, worry about your relationship with God, because he's got them covered. So trust him. What we need to recognize is that our deliverance is not in a political party. It's not in some bill being passed through Congress. It's not in where our military resides around the world. It's not in how great our economy is going. Our salvation is in God. And we need to hear him telling us, look, I got all that stuff covered. You focus on your walk with me because you can't control that. As Jesus said, when is worrying added a single stature to your measure? God's got it. You worry about you. You worry about your neighbor and how you're spreading the love of Christ to them and how you're accepting the love of Christ in your own life. So, we recognize, all right, he's the God of, yes, us, the Israelites. He's the God of the nations. Cool. Let's move on now and see what's he up to. Now, you've heard the word apocalypse, because I used it. You've heard it elsewhere before. No one actually knows what an apocalypse is. Everyone's like, you're the apocalypse. (laughs) Other than, like, blood everywhere, what does that mean? Well, apocalypse is simply a word that means to unveil or to lift the curtain on. It just means to reveal. 
So when we call Revelation an apocalypse, it means it's the unveiling. There's something that the human eye, the human mind can't comprehend on its own. So God uses prophets to lift the veil. It's almost like there's just this grand display, right? God has been, it's like when Disneyland, they keep building these new parks in their land, right? And it keeps jacking the price up for all this normal folk. But so... You know what they do, right? Everything's like under a wall. It's under a curtain. You can't see what's coming. They want the anticipation. But it's almost like God lifts the veil just a little bit and says, you want a little peek and see what's coming? Look. That's what an apocalypse is. It's a little peek at what's coming. And so Isaiah is going to give us this in the next four chapters. So chapter 24. Behold, Yahweh will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Now, if this makes you think of Revelation, you're exactly right. And it will be, as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with the master. As with the maid, so with the mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. It doesn't matter your status. The whole earth is getting it. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for Yahweh has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Among everything else, to meet the axe is earth itself. Why? He just accused us. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Those people living on it have ruined it. They've defiled it. And then it goes into more detail. Um, So it, it isn't just you've trashed it, and we have done that, but it's more than that. He says, for they have transgressed the laws and violated the statutes and broken the everlasting covenant. God is saying humanity as a whole has not lived up to what I created them for. Now, not everyone had a relationship with Yahweh like Israel did, but you know what they did have? Paul tells us in Romans 2 that they had their conscience, and yet they were unwilling to abide by their conscience. So they completely turned their back on God. They exchanged his glory for the glory of created things. That's why all this is coming down. Now, I want you to read with me um, verse 7 because it's going to pop up later. There's going to be a lot of wine. It's going to be flowing, or actually it's going to be not flowing, from verse 7 through 11. Let's do it. The wine mourns, even the wine is weeping. The vine languishes, and the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine is tambourines is stilled. The noise of jubilant of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No music. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. So now. He's not accusing people of getting drunk. You don't see that going on here. What's happening is no music, no wine. In a Jewish context, you can't have a good time without music and wine. Not that they needed the wine, but they, they use, when music and wine was present, it meant something was being celebrated. So you take those away, there's nothing to celebrate. That's what Isaiah is communicating. Um, So verse 10, the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. (laughs) So people are rioting in the streets because we want wine, but there's no wine. Um, All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. So, of course, you're seeing wine is the metaphor here for the earth being fruitful because wine comes from the grape. And the grape was one of the main things that Israel grew. So desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. So no wine. They're upset. Now look at verse 23. Then the moon will be confounded 
and the son ashamed. For Yahweh of hosts reigns on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. It doesn't say this directly, but it hints, doesn't it, at this thought that maybe everything's in turmoil precisely because Yahweh of hosts is reigning in Jerusalem. Think about this for a minute. Anytime a government, we see this today, there's been all kinds of coups going on around the world. Anytime you see a ruler taken down, there's a little bit of chaos, disorder. There's a tremor in the world. There's uncertainty. When governments go through changes, nothing's stable. And when God takes his place to rule in Jerusalem, nothing is going to be stable. Because no king on this earth is going to say, oh yes, someone's going to take my place. We see it all the time. They lie, they cheat, they make fake democracies to keep their power. They kill people that are a threat to them. I mean, we all know that Vladimir Putin's in power for a reason. He's like that, right? Like, this is how kings keep their power. No one's going, oh, yay, Jesus is here. Nope. There's tumult in the world because it groans under this, oh, no, humanity's going to fight against God. So we see the kingdom of God coming. And yes, sometimes the axe has to come down because the kingdom of God is not going to thrive if everyone else is still rotten to the core. The kingdom of God is made of people who have allowed the rottenness to be replaced with fruit, with shoots, with, with fruitfulness to God. And so God's got to do some business. 25 gets really good. Um, so we see that there's tumult, there's a shaking, but now it starts getting good. We see goods coming out of this. So Yahweh's in Zion, apparently. Chapter 25, verse 6. Look at this. On this mountain, it means Jerusalem. The mountain Jerusalem's on. On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged... What was everyone crying for? Wine. Wine. Of rich food full of marrow, aged Wine, well refined. Twice he's told you the wine's good there. So everyone's upset. Well, he's, he's, he's bringing something back. He's bringing something good. There's this great feast on the mountain for all peoples. This is not just for the Jews. This is for all peoples. So verse 7, And he will, when he brings this feast with him, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What? What covering? What veil is spread across all the nations? Verse 8 answers, he will swallow up death forever. He, on that mountain, is going to start a feast and invite the whole world. Remember Isaiah chapter 2? How it said that on this mountain, I will make Jerusalem the center of the earth and all the nations will come to it and say, let's learn from the ways of Yahweh. Let's go to his mountain. Well, now we're seeing another vision of this mountain being the center of the earth and here the great feast. What does Revelation call it? The wedding supper of the lamb, right? Or that's one way to look at it. What did Jesus call it? The last supper. On this mountain, I will have a feast. There was wine at the Last Supper. And he swallows up death. Jesus goes to the cross. On this mountain, I will swallow up death. He goes to the cross and he enters into death. I love this. To kill death. Imagine, imagine death as a monster. And it consumes the eternal life of God, the Zoe life as the Gospel of John calls it, the, the ongoing deep life of God, it consumes that. Well, you can't kill eternal life. So death swallows it, and you are what you eat, so death now becomes life. He eats life, and the life breaks out of death, and death is now conquered. It defeats itself by consuming the God of life. The veil over the nations, death, 
will be swallowed up, Isaiah says. Now, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, everything was clear, right? There was no veil. There was no covering. There was no death. Yet when they sin, Isaiah sees it as if this blanket fell upon the creation that blinded us to the glory that once was. We call it the fall in our terminology. Everything is a shadow of its former self. But God will one day lift this veil. Yes, it's going to be pretty chaotic when it happens, apparently. But he will lift this veil and people will see reality as it really is. The true king behind the nations as he always has been. Jesus conquers death on this mountain. Seems to be a very clear allusion to him. He throws a little mini feast a really puny version of what's to come in the future in the Last Supper. Come, eat with me. You 12 are going to represent the nations coming to me, and you're going to get life from me. And then he goes like our hero and takes on death. Now, now what's interesting, according to the commentaries I read, because I don't know a lot about um, ancient paganism during this time, but apparently they told a lot of myths in which death swallowed their gods. But here we see God swallowing death. Yeah? So like death, yes, it swallows Jesus, but in the end, it gets defeated by Jesus. And God here is saying, I'm going to make a feast of meal. I'm going to serve you wine, and I'm going to serve you death. Not that you're going to get it, but you're going, he's like lifts the lid. He's like, what did you, what did you barbecue, God? He's like, oh, can't you? It, it smells lovely. And he lifts it. Death is barbecued. Let's feast. It's gone. Death is swallowed. That's what our God does. He swallows that which doesn't bring life. He doesn't want us to be swallowed by death. So he will chop down and he will cut in half what he needs to in order that we don't go the route of the nations, but that we bear the fruits of the shoot that's coming out of the stump. Now, I just have to show you this. Um, Please flip over to John chapter 20. The swallowing of death. We see Isaiah prophesy it. You're going to see it happen. John chapter 20. Jesus is, he's been raised from the dead. The disciples are starting to figure this out. So they're investigating. Um, Peter and the one whom Jesus loved raced to the tomb. And they saw nothing and said, huh, there's nothing here. And they left. But Mary stands around. So look at John 20 verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. So wiping the tears away, she looks into the dimness. And as her eyes adjust, what does she see? She sees something that should have completely startled her. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. No, the angels didn't startle her. It's the visual she saw that startled her. She looks in. She sees two angels, one at the head and one at the foot. Okay, so Jesus is laid, and this is how they do it. You put a dead body on like a slab of stone, and you let it rot for a year. And once it's completely rotted, you go back in, and you collect the bones, and you put it in a box, and you put it on a shelf so all your family can fit into this one tomb. So whoever died most recently is on the table. Jesus' body would have been on this table, She looks in, there's no body, but instead there's at the head and at the foot, there are two angels. When you also lifted the veil and went into the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple, you would have seen there a table, or they called it a chest, or a box, or a seat. But there is a flat surface on which the blood of offerings would have been put, and on the head and the foot of it was angels or cherubim mary is looking in she's getting an apocalyptic moment the veil is being lifted and she's looking in and she thinking she's stepping into a tomb of death she finds herself walking into the holy of holies and here's the amazing thing 
The grave is the maw of death. It's the jaws of things that kill. The grave is where the dead go. Yet inside the mouth of death itself, she finds the very center of God's presence. God has swallowed death. That's the great joke. He gave himself to it and it died. And now the feast is on. Jesus continues to ask us to come, drink, and eat of my feast. Well, Isaiah sure saw it, right? Now, because of this, um, look at chapter 26. Because death is going to be defeated... 26 verse 1 says, well, yeah, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Ah, see, music's returned too. Wine and music are back. Things are good. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. So this is who's coming. Come to the, to the feast. Open the gates. Verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So trust in Yahweh forever, for Yahweh God is an everlasting rock. He has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. What city? It just seems to be this metaphor for the system, right? The city. I mean, which one do you want me to name? The ones in Egypt? The ones in Babylon? The ones in Russia? America? I don't know. What city do you want me to name? They've all been laid low because the king and his kingdom are here. Um, It reads just like Revelation, doesn't it? When Babylon's brought down, he lays it low. It crumbles to the dust. The foot tramples it. What feet? The feet of the poor. The steps of the needy. They're the ones trampling the city of wealth, the city of the oppressors. So that's your song that they sing. God's going to keep you in peace. If, if this is his feast, and if he swallows death, what in the world are we anxious about? You just saw him deal with all the nations one by one. Hack, 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 hack. What are you worried about? He goes on if you don't get it yet. Verse 12, 26-12, O oh Lord, Oh, Yahweh, you ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us our works. He's done the works for us, and he's given us peace as a result. That's great. Uh, look at verse 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Verse 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. For behold, Yahweh is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Remember how when Cain killed Abel, God said, Don't kid with me, I hear your brother's blood crying out to me. Murder, the blood that comes as a result of unjust death, in oppression, it cries out to God. And it will no longer be disclosed, it says. He's going to hear every single cry. Ooh, can you imagine all the cries of history coming in one moment? Yeah, that, that might stir God a little bit, you know? Okay, then um, we'll, close, we'll um, finish up 27 here. And then we'll go back with... Um, What is God inviting us to here? So 27, the great triumph. In that day, so this future great glorious God's coming kind of day, Yahweh with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. See Revelation 12 if you want to see John's take on this image. Isaiah gives him the name Leviathan. In John, he just calls him that serpent, the devil. May have some, there may be some twist here with the beast, too. Um, of course, prophecy sometimes would see the future, but it's so far out that you can't always make a distinction between two things. It might look like just one blob, 
But as you get closer, as John gets closer when he writes, he's like, oh, wait, no, there's, there's two Leviathans. There's the beast that comes out of the sea, and then there's the dragon, the devil, right? So Isaiah may very well be seeing both. He calls him Leviathan. Well, Yahweh's great. His strong, his hard sword will bring an end to this beast of chaos. And in that day, verse 2, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. Why? Why sing? Because the vineyard was a rotten vineyard earlier in chapter 5. Now it's going to be pleasant. So sing, people, sing. I, Yahweh, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. I'm not quite sure what this means. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle? I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Maybe God's just saying he's gotten so used to having to keep the weeds out of his people that now that there aren't weeds, he's like, I don't know what to do with myself. (laughs) Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. And verse 6 brings us all the way full circle. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and will fill the whole world with fruit. The vineyard will finally produce wine. And there won't be any more riots in the streets. (laughs) Isn't that good? That's just great. So this is what Isaiah sees. So let's let's track again, okay? Chapters 1 through 12, he's talking to his people. And in the midst of this, in the very center of this message, he's saying, yeah, you're sick and rotten in your vineyard that's bearing wild grapes. But Emmanuel... God with us. There's going to be something. Yep, you're going to be chopped down, but Emmanuel will be with you even as a stump because you will one day bear fruit because Emmanuel will come in the body of Jesus. Chapters 13 through 23, all these nations you're worried about, Israel, who should we marry? Who should we strike deals with? Who do we need to depend upon? Forget about it. Depend upon me. I am the one who's got them all in my hands anyways. So know what I'm about. And then chapters 24 through 27. Yep, it is going to get bad. It always does. You give birth to new life, just ask women around you. It gets bad. That's just part of the process. But see the good? See the feast I'm holding? See the fruit that's going to fill the whole land? See how I'm going to swallow death? It will be angel food cake or something for us. It'll just be nothing anymore. In light of all of that, I think 26 verse 3 rings so true. I think it's Isaiah's call to us. Like, in light of all this, look, perfect peace is yours. Why worry anymore? Why worry? 26 3. I'm going to read it again, and then I'm going to apply this backward for you. You keep him in perfect peace. I love it. it. didn't just say peace. Like, you keep them in peace. We all want peace, man. So you smoke a joint. Like, that was the 70s peace, right? This is perfect peace. This is complete, whole peace. There's no break in the circle of wholeness. It's lion and lamb together, right? This is peace. And he will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Do we want to walk in this vision of perfect peace of a God we can trust and not worry about? Then here's what he's saying. Those who trust God have their minds stay upon him. And then they have perfect peace. So walking through the verse backwards, you see how it works. Trust means keeping your mind on him, which gives you perfect peace. Now think about this. If I trust God, I'm not going to always be filling my mind with all the problems in our country. I'm going to be filling my mind with his sovereignty. That's trust. Now, a marriage where, the, where one of the partners is always worried about the other one leaving them, thinking all the bad things that could happen. That's not trust, right? But having your mind stayed upon this union, this relationship, that's trust. And so for us, where's our mind? Our mind and where it stayed shows us where our trust is. Where do you find your mind staying? Where do you find it resting? 
you're probably like me, or I'm probably like you, or we're probably alike, whichever, in that my mind isn't good at staying on anything for too long. Because there's always something that I've got to think about, or solve, or worry about, or plan for. There's always something. Right now, I know a lot. I've seen your little minds flutter like birds. (laughs) And occasionally it comes back with a big question mark. Where is he? (laughs) Having your mind stayed on God, though, that's what gives you the perfect peace. And that's what trust looks like. So I lose peace when I start, well, putting my mind in pieces, right? I've got this part of my brain to worry about that, that to plan about this and this to make that happen, and this to manipulate that person or this situation. And That's not trusting, though. Keeping my mind on him, well, that's where the peace is at. Now, we can go down the road of, so read your Bible every day. It helps. Pray every day. That helps, too. But let's talk about things you maybe you shouldn't do as well, like... Let's not have our mind be stayed upon cable news. This is one of the fastest ways to break your perfect peace. Isaiah would not say cable news is helpful. In fact, I think he would say, just read chapters 13 to 23 and see, yep, God's got it. Like, that is the only cable news you need, is a a frequent refreshing of the God who rules the nations. Perfect. Now, okay, let me clarify. News is great. It's important to know what's up, but... Do you really think you have to know what's going on every hour or even every day? Honestly, do you know who wants you to think you need to know what's happening right now? Who wants you to think that? The news networks. They get a living off of your, I gotta know, I gotta see. Oh no, more image of this and that. Okay, um, this is not at all boasting. I just want to share like how freeing this is. Um, we don't we don't have cable. I know I'm one of those like you know younger people like cut the cord like roll streaming yeah, whatever. Um, but what's cool is we don't have news networks to watch. So I'm not inundated like with this like obsession of got to see the image again one more time that big tsunami wave. Wow, oh my goodness, and worrying all the time. We're not subject to that, and it's been great. Honestly, you know what I've learned is that news that I need to know about always finds me. It always does. I don't need my phone blowing up every hour about what's new. You know, NPR does an update every hour about the world, a five-minute update. Like, they could get obsessive. Oh, no, I don't, I knew, I heard it at 2 o'clock, but Trump might have tweeted something at 3 o'clock. I got to know. And here's the other thing. So I went to, like, reading the news instead. But even that became a bit of of a pit. It's like, oh, my goodness, it's so stressful that it's like, oh, I didn't get through all those articles or that article or... And you know what I began to realize there? It changes the next day anyways. So what if I miss three days? Today it's different than it was the other day. So what good was reading it the other day? I don't know. Um, so like for me, part of keeping peace is I only need to know what's going on once a week. Give me a weekly update on what's going on in the world. That's good enough. I will, it will tell, I will find out one way or another if I needed to know now. And usually someone tells me anyways. Oh, I don't have a phone with me. Imagine that. But I'm like, did you see this? I didn't, but I knew you would show me. So um, so that's, that's just, I know from conversations, it, great. I, you know, we love talking about politics and things in the nation. I know, that's great. But I know from conversations that it's definitely something on our minds. It is definitely on our minds. And I'm, I'm just wondering, are we, are we chopping ourselves down by not putting our minds on Christ more? Right? We only need to know so much. Um, you can, this is the same, you go down, I just harped on that one because it's something that I've experienced in life. But like, go with television or go with sports. Man, that's a cycle of addiction. It can be um, money. What, what is eating at your mind? And if you're keeping your mind on it, okay, on one hand, yes, we've got to use our minds on these things. But on the other hand, is your mind stayed on these things? Because that will break your perfect peace. If God gives peace, and Ephesians chapter 1 says that he has given us everything through Christ Jesus, every spiritual blessing, it's already yours. So if God gives us peace, you don't have peace, whose fault is that? Somewhere I have not kept my mind on him. 
Now, please, let's be realistic. You don't have to literally be like, oh, no, I thought about work. I wasn't thinking about God. I was focusing on the road because there was a rock. Come on. The mind can learn to just go into a default rest in God. When you're talking to someone, how is God teaching me through this person? How is this situation bringing me closer to God? It's just about a way of seeing life that teaches us to keep our mind to be stayed on him. And that's great. God is speaking to us through so many mediums, but our minds aren't stayed on him, so we miss them. Well, what, as we said earlier, what good is worrying doing anyways? You know, I looked up the word worry because I knew we use the word worry. Like, I'm worried about this. But then we also say, like, that dog is worrying his bone. <laughs> to worry is to gnaw over something. It means my mind is all, it's gnawing on it over and over and over. And then I got to, because I really love looking at the origin of words, the etymology of words, where they come from, what's their history, how do they evolve. Well, <laughs> worry, it turns out, is related to the word ring. Like, I'm going to ring this rag out. Because that's what worry does to us, is it rings your inners. It rings your peace. It rings your mind until there's nothing left of it. And then it had other meanings. Um, so to ring, to choke, to gnaw. Whew. Yeah, no. At God's feast, there are no bones in the meat. Pure meat. You're not going to choke on anything. You're not going to have to gnaw anything. You're not going to have to worry. It's pure, refined. That's what it said. Pure and refined, well-aged. That's the kind of feast he's giving us. So, you're not doing anything by worrying except robbing yourself of peace. Lord, I pray that you would teach us.